Welcome to History Books and Wine, where three author friends talk about books and fun historical tidbits, all while raising a glass of vino. We're your hosts, Lori and Bailey, Eliza Knight, and Madeline Martin. So, pour a glass and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 14 of History Books and Wine podcast. Thank you for joining me tonight. I'm Eliza Knight, your host for this week. I'm a USA Today bestselling author of Scottish historical romance with irresistible heroes, courageous heroines, and daring adventure. And under my name, E. Knight, I write rip-your-heart-out historical fiction that crosses the landscapes around the world. Our podcast topics over the next few weeks are all about alcohol. This week, I'm talking about spirits, a.k.a. liquor. Next week, Madeline will be speaking about beer and ale, followed by Lori digging deep into whiskey. And at our happy hour, we'll be discussing all things wine. First, I'm going to tell you what I'm drinking tonight, and it's not wine. In the spirit of, well, spirits, which is what I'm talking about this week, I'm having an amaretto sour. It is really delicious. I had my first amaretto sour a few years ago, and I was really surprised that I liked it because I'm not much of a liquor drinker myself. So here is the ingredients if you would like to make your own amaretto sour. One and a half ounces of amaretto liqueur, one ounce of simple syrup, three quarters of an ounce of fresh lemon juice, one orange slice, and one maraschino cherry. You pour the amaretto the simple syrup and the lemon juice into a cocktail shaker with some ice, shake it up, strain it into a glass over ice, and then garnish with your orange slice and cherry. I'll wait if you want to make one while I take a sip. All right, let's hope you're all drinking your favorite cocktail with me tonight, and maybe it's even an amaretto sour. Let's get down to business, liquor and its history. What is the difference between spirits and liquor? You see this word used interchangeably a lot in reference to the same thing. But listen, we don't go to the spirit store, although I might start saying that because it's kind of funny. No, we go to the liquor store, which is full of spirits. Okay, sorry about that. That was really bad and um, lame, and I blame it on my liquor. (laughs) So here's the difference. Actually, there is no difference. Liquor, aka spirits, is actually the same thing. It's an alcoholic product made from grain or fruit or vegetable-derived sugar that's fermented and distilled. It yields a lower water content and higher alcohol by volume. Hence why a shot of spirits has the equivalent alcohol level of a glass of wine or a beer. There are six types of distilled spirits. Brandy, gin, rum, tequila, vodka, whiskey, which Lori will be discussing later in a couple of weeks. And she's got some really good info you want for that. Make sure you tune in. So what's the difference? Let's break it down by the different liquors and spirits. First, we're going to start with gin. Gin is a colorless alcoholic beverage made by distilling grain mash and then redistilling it with added flavors in addition to juniper berries, which it always has. So you might add anise, citrus peels, nutmeg, frankincense, saffron, coriander, caraway seeds, angelica root. Those are just a few ideas. It has a required minimum of 37.5 alcohol by volume, also known as ABV, but is usually defined as having no less than 40% ABV, also known as 80 proof. In the medieval era, gin was used as an herbal medicine. Its first recorded uses were in the 17th century under the name Geneva. It was said to be used by English soldiers in the 16th century to calm their nerves before the Battle of Antwerp against the Spanish during the Eighty Years' War. By the mid-17th century, 
country, Geneva, distilled with anise, caraway, coriander, etc., was sold in pharmacies for treating stomach ailments, gallstones, and gout. It grew in popularity when William of Orange took the English throne, growing even more popular because the French imported brandies were being heavily taxed. No licenses were required at the time to make gin, and as such, all sorts of distillers were popping up all over the place doing their due diligence in producing the heavily sought-after drink. This led to what has been labeled the gin craze, forcing Parliament to pass laws in limiting the consumption of gin in the 1700s. Magistrates were complaining that the increased consumption of gin was causing an increase in vice and debauchery. In 1736, some Middlesex magistrates complained, It is with the deepest concern your committee observed the strong inclination of the inferior sort of people to these destructive liquors, and how surprisingly this infection has spread with these few years. It is scarce possible for persons of low life to go anywhere or to be anywhere without being drawn in to taste and by degrees to like and approve of this pernicious liquor. Though the gin craze began to diminish after the final Parliament Act in 1751, which required a license to distill it, despite this temporary ban on the use of domestic grain for distillation in the Victorian era, gin palaces began to appear, and by 1840, gin had resumed its pre-prohibition consumption levels. Side note here, prior to the use of the word alcoholism, which was first coined in 1852, but were said to have dipsomania in 1819, which meant a chronic craving for alcohol. Prior to this, people were considered to be having a disease of chronic drunkenness. Some cocktails which use gin today are the gin and tonic, the French 75, which dates back to World War I, and was given the name based on its powerful kick being as strong as a French 75mm field gun. There is also the Tom Collins, which I remember wanting to try specifically after seeing the movie Meet the Parents, which is hilarious if you haven't seen it. Go do yourself a favor. Next up, we have vodka. Vodka is a clear distilled liquor that originated in Poland and Russia. It is traditionally made from cereal grains or potatoes that have been fermented. Vodka has the same ABV as gin. Here's a few facts about vodka. The word vodka stems from the Slavic word for water, voda, and was recorded for the first time in the year 1405 in court documents. It was originally used as a medicinal drink and for cosmetic cleansers. This last one had me pausing. (laughs) If you guys tuned in to our podcast at our happy hour, Lori talked about cosmetics and the type of cosmetics they were using. I just imagine that they would definitely need something as strong as vodka to clean it off your face. So, in 1534, Stéphane Filmiers, and I may be butchering that name, said that vodka could help to increase fertility and awaken lust. I believe the latter might still be true today, no? It was used in medieval days as a disinfectant and for cleansing wounds. By the early 16th century, vodka consumption was becoming quite popular, and a hundred years later, it was said that a third of the male population was actually in debt to the taverns for having consumed so much vodka. Lenin ended prohibition on vodka in the 1920s and introduced a vodka light, which only had a 30% ABV. After his death, full-strength vodka returned to the market. During World War II, there was a daily ration of vodka, and some Russians have said this ration helped them to fight against the Nazis. So, do you fancy a vodka pasta sauce? This is an American cuisine made from tomato sauce, vodka, herbs, and heavy cream. The alcohol is cooked out of the vodka, but the use of the spirit awakens the flavor of the tomato. Some cocktails that use vodka are the Bloody Mary, which was invented in the 1920s as a hangover cure and is now popular at most brunches. The Cosmopolitan, a martini, Moscow Mule, Mudslide, Screwdriver, White Russian, a Kensington Court Special are among many more of the types of cocktails that can be made from vodka, besides just having it straight up. Alright, we're up to 
new rum, the favored drink of Jack Sparrow and other pirates. Rum is distilled from sugarcane juice or sugar byproducts or molasses. The clear distilled liquid is then aged in oak barrels. Also, sometimes it's used colloquially as a generic or collective name for intoxicating liquor. In a 1651 publication titled A Brief Description of the Island of Barbados, it says, The chief fuddling they make in the island is rumbillion, alias kill devil, and this is made of sugarcane, distilled, a hot, hellish, and terrible drink. And yet another source says the name rum comes from the Latin word for sugar, which is saccharum. I'll let you decide. According to the book Rum Curious by Fred Minnick, Africans who were enslaved on the Caribbean islands and forced to conduct labor at sugar Sugar mills and plantations may have actually been the inventors of rum. Minnick says slaves planted the sugarcane, fertilized it, cut stalks, and transported it to a mill where the cane was crushed and juice extracted. They strained the juice and placed it in boiling pots until the sugar was crystallized. Slaves also send the boiling matter to collect the molasses, the syrupy byproduct from making sugar. Molasses could be sold and used as a sweetener too, but the fermented molasses was enjoyed by the slaves. At some point, somebody distilled this fermented molasses and rum was born. By the 1700s, rum was a trending spirit and enjoyed by islanders and American colonists who consumed allegedly 3.7 gallons a year per person. That is a lot of rum. In 1731, British royal sailors received a daily pint of Jamaican rum, each as part of their rations. And in 1762, an essay on the most effectual means of preserving the health of seamen in the Royal Navy, Dr. James Lind wrote that rum proves the best and quickest restorative which a sailor can have at sea. Rum may have also played a role in the American Revolution. In 1764, King George of England passed the Sugar Act, which forbade colonies from importing rum. In protest, they stage a much less popular protest than the one involving tea. It was at this time that America started to encourage the production and consumption of whiskey over rum to discourage further taxation and regulation from the king across the sea. But that didn't stop rum from being a popular drink. Apparently, George Washington even insisted on having a barrel from Barbados at his 1789 inauguration. Rum flowed at speakeasies during the Prohibition era. However, because of its popularity and demand, it was often hard to come by, and the spirits served in cocktails and punches were likely moon shines made in someone's bathtub. Yuck. There are many variations of rum. Dark rum, flavored rum, gold or amber rum, light rum, overproof rum that goes up to 150 or 160 proof, spiced rums, and premium rums. If you fancy a drink, you might have a Mai Tai, a pina colada, a mojito, or a rum toddy. Rums are not only good for sipping, punches, and cocktails, but in cooking. Think of rum balls, rum cakes, fruit cakes, marinades, and bananas foster. I have a funny story about rum balls, actually. We went to a Christmas cookie exchange, and someone had brought rum balls. Well, if you're a kid, a rum ball looks an awful lot like a donut hole. So when we weren't looking, one of our daughters picked up a rum ball and took a bite and obviously ran to the bathroom and spit it out immediately because she was so horrified at the flavor. And then we figured out what had happened, and we advised our host that maybe next time they should warn uh, the families uh, or label cookies that might be filled with alcohol. Just saying. All right. So now we're going to move on to tequila. How many stories have you heard that started with, oh my gosh, that time I had tequila. I have a lot of those stories back from college. Um, so anyways, moving on. Tequila is a spirit distilled from the fermented juice of the blue agave plant found primarily in the city of Tequila, Mexico. It is the oldest distilled North American spirit. The fermented juice of the agave plant called pulk, which was a milky looking liquid, was produced by the Aztecs a thousand years ago. In the 1500s, 
When the Spanish conquistadors who were in Mexico ran out of their own brandy, they decided to distill their own agave, which produced tequila. By 1600, tequila was being mass-produced, and by 1608, the colonial governor was taxing the product and trading between Manila and Mexico. In 1758, Spain's King Carlos granted the Cuervo family the first license to commercially distill tequila. I know you know that name. And in 1884, Don Sonobio Sosa was exporting his Sosa tequila to the U.S. In 1930. A newspaper man named James Grant and his wife took a trip to Tijuana, where they visited a bar run by an Irishman named Madden. He was known around the area for his tequila daisy. Did you know that margarita in Spanish means daisy? So Madden had invented this margarita and he admitted to he admitted that the creation of the drink was a lucky mistake. And what a lucky mistake it was, as it's now an extremely popular drink. There are four types of tequila. Blanco, which is white, Reposado, rested, Anejo, vintage, and Extra Anejo, ultra-aged. Some cocktails you might have with tequila in it are obviously the Margarita, the Tequila Sunrise, the Matador, the Mojito Blanco, a Vampiro, various martinis, and the Paloma. Yummy! Next up is brandy. Brandy is a spirit of caramel coloring produced from distilling wine or other mashed fruit. Cognac is one of the most popular brandies and is produced in France. Brandy was distilled in France around 1313 and was prepared at first as a medicine. It was considered to possess strengthening and sanitary power, so much so that it was named l'eau de vie or water of life, which is still called today. During the 15th century, wine was distilled as a preservation method in order to make it easier for merchants to transport it. They thought it would also lessen the tax. Once it reached a destination, the intent was to add water back into the liquid that had been preserved in barrels. But after being stored in these wooden casts, the resulting spirit was much improved. Hey, we made liquor by accident. To test the purity of the distilled spirits, a portion of it was ignited. If the entire contents were consumed by fire, the liquor was good. They would also put gunpowder at the bottom of the spirited barrel. If the gunpowder ignited after the spirit was consumed by fire, then the liquor was good. You might also be dead. Just saying. Whose idea was that? There is an iconic painting you might recall of a St. Bernard rescue dog with a cask of brandy fastened to his collar. I'll post a pic on our social media for you to see it if you haven't already. It was created by Edwin Landseer in 1820, a 17-year-old. He titled the painting Alpine Mastiffs Reanimating a Distressed Traveler. The painting portrays two St. Bernards, and I'll tell you a story about these dogs in a minute. But the two dogs are standing over a fallen traveler. One dog is barking in alarm, and the other is attempting to revive the traveler by licking his hand. This licking dog has a barrel strapped around his neck which the artist claimed was full of brandy to warm the travelers. So, about these famous St. Bernards. I actually got to see one of the most famous of them named Barry. Well, actually, it was his stuffed body, to be more clear when I was in Bern, Switzerland last fall. I'll post a picture on social media of that as well so you can see him. It was at the uh, Natural History Museum in Bern. So here's the story behind the famous rescue dog, according to the Natural History Museum. Barry was born in 1800, the year that Thomas Jefferson became the third president of the United States, and Schiller's Mary Stewart was performed for the first time. Barry lived as a rescue dog at the hospice of the Great St. Bernard Pass, which is situated almost 2,500 meters above sea level. The hospice has been run since the 11th century by August cannon. Crossing the pass used to be dangerous at any time of the year, and the cannons and their servants would rescue people who got lost or became trapped in the snow. As time went by, the cannons began to take dogs with them when they went out looking for travelers. As a result of this collaboration between man and beast, over 2,000 people were saved from death over the course of 200 years. Barry is said to have helped in the rescue of 40 people and was legendary even during his lifetime. The cannons rescue dogs were not like modern avalanche dogs. Their main role was to find the way back to the hospice in heavy blizzards. Barry was 
was almost certainly an extraordinary dog, or he wouldn't have been famous even before his death. However, many of the legends surrounding him are not based in fact, which includes the barrel of brandy around his neck. Barry died in 1814 in Bern. He spent the last two years of his life in retirement and was brought to the city at the request of the prior. It's not clear why the head of the community of the great St. Bernard Pass decided on Protestant Bern, but the story lends substance to the theory that Barry must have been a very special dog. Despite the dogs being portrayed as carrying casts of brandy or other such alcohol, there is no account that this actually happened. Alcohol might make you feel warmer, but because it causes your blood vessels to dilate, it actually makes all the blood rush to your skin, which causes your body to quickly lose its core temperature. That being said, the museum does show Barry with a cask around his neck to stick with tradition. But if you ask the historians, they'll tell you that the dogs never did wear them. I just love dogs and Barry is seriously a hero. So, back to Brandy. In 1798 and 1799, George Washington distilled apple and peach brandy at his plantation Mount Vernon in the U.S., where he also distilled whiskey more commonly. He was the only founding father in the U.S. to operate a commercial distillery. He was convinced to do so by James Anderson, his Scottish farm manager. Six of his slaves, Hanson, Peter, Nat, Daniel, James, and Timothy, were assigned to work on the distillery with Anderson. Brandy is often used as a deglazing liquid in pan sauces for steak and is used often to flavor soups. It can be used in brandy butter, Christmas pudding, mulled wine, Jerry's Jubilee, and flambe, where they literally light your meal or dessert on fire. That was it for those six, but a couple of others you might be familiar with are moonshine and absinthe. I've tried both, actually in equally entertaining environments. When I was in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, we went to several moonshine distilleries to taste them. It was my first time, and I have to say, I did enjoy several. A couple of my favorites were an apple pie flavor and a sweet tea. As for absinthe, I tried this at a historical romance retreat in Spokane a couple of years ago and found the flavor to be quite lovely. I think that moonshine and absinthe could actually each have their own episode. So this is giving me some ideas. All right, moving on, friends. Actually, I'm going to take a sip of my cocktail. So yummy. Okay, so when it comes to the quality of liquors, you're best to choose a higher quality. I don't drink liquor very often, as I mentioned earlier, and when I do, it needs to be premium because the lower quality stuff often gives me an instant migraine about halfway through the drink. And I know some other people that this has happened to. It's very strange, but it only happens with lower quality liquors. I don't know why, but I do know that when I drink a higher quality liquor, it doesn't happen. Somebody at the liquor store once told me that, or sorry, the spirit store um, told me that it might be some sort of like sensitivity or allergy to whatever grain they're using, but I have yet to figure out what it could be. So moving on, let's not get your liquor confused with your liqueur. Liqueur is made from liquor. It's sweetened, often flavored like schnapps or creme liqueur such as Kahlua, Amaretto. My husband loves Baron Yager, which is a honey-flavored German whiskey. And just as spirits is the same thing as liquor, a liqueur is basically the same thing as a cordial. Basically, liqueurs have added fruit, creme, sweets, or herbals added to flavor of the liqueur, and liquor tastes like fire, or at least that's my opinion. Elizabeth I of England was very fond of cordials, just to point that out there. Now, in talking about cordials, I think a lot about cocktails. Let's talk about the word cocktail. Where did it come from? In Andrew Smith's book, Drinking History, he notes the word cocktail describing a drink first appeared in print in 1803. Several sources place its origin in the late 18th century. 
A New York author and historian, Washington Irving, wrote in 1809 that this class of beverage was originated in Maryland, which is where I live, so yay for Maryland, whose inhabitants were prone to make merry and get fuddled with mint julep and apple toddy. (laughs) New York State novelist James Fenimore Cooper attributed the invention of the cocktail to one Elizabeth Betty Flanagan, a war widow who lived near the road from Sleepy Hollow at the time of the American War. However, according to Frank Colby's article, many theories offered on Origin of Cocktail written in April of 1949 in the Los Angeles Times, J.A. of New Orleans wrote, I recall reading many years ago, made no note of it, that the cocktail originated at an English function centuries ago when someone drank to a group of soldiers who wore cocktails on their hats. In giving the toast with a mixed drink, he said, here's to the cocktail. Another story says that in 1793, a Frenchman, A.A. Peychaud, and his sister fled to New Orleans to escape an uprising on the island of San Domingo. He established a pothecary shop, which possessed a formula for making a remarkable tonic called bitters. It was Peychaud's custom to serve a dram of cognac and bitters in one end of an old-fashioned double-ended egg cup, the French word for egg cup, which is cocotier. The new drink soon became known as cocotier, and the pronunciation was corrupted by non-French-speaking persons to cocktail. It is thought that in the slurred speech of those who may have drunk too many cocktails, the word soon became further corrected to cocktail which early in the 1800s came to be accepted as the official name of the drink. So you guys decide how it came about. That's all I have for you tonight in regards to liquor. Really, we could keep going for hours, right? Okay, so what am I reading this week? This week, I am reading a thriller called The Woman in Cabin 10 by Ruth Ware. It is incredible and it gives me chills just thinking about it. I will read to you the blurb. In this tightly wound and thrilling story reminiscent of Agatha Christie's work, Lo Blacklock, a journalist who writes for a travel magazine, has just been given the assignment of a lifetime, a week on a luxury cruise with only a handful of cabins. The sky is clear, the waters calm, and the veneered select guest Jovials, the exclusive cruise ship the Aurora, begins her voyage in the picturesque North Sea. At first, Lo's stay is nothing but pleasant. The cabins are plush, the dinner parties are sparkling, and the guests are elegant. But as the week wears on, frigid winds whip the deck, gray skies fall, and Lo witnesses what she can only describe as a dark and terrifying nightmare, a woman being thrown overboard. The problem? All the passengers remain accounted for, and so the ship sails on as if nothing has happened, despite Lowe's desperate attempts to convey that something or someone has gone terribly, terribly wrong. With surprising twists, spine-tingling turns, and a setting that proves as uncomfortably claustrophobic as it is eerily beautiful, Ruth Ware offers up another taut and intense read in The Woman in Cabin 10, one that will leave even the most sure-footed reader restlessly uneasy long after the last page is turned. And that is the truth. Now for a book of mine, Guarded by the Warrior is what I'm going to be talking about this week. Suffering through a short marriage to an enemy of Scotland, Lady Amelia McCulloch manages to escape just before her husband dies. But the Ross clan will stop at nothing to get her back, for she plays a big part in their plans to thwart Robert the Bruce. She fears not only for her life, but for her family, who will be labeled traitors. Placed by her king as a governess in the household of a devastatingly handsome warrior, Amelia finds herself drawn to the man when she had previously sworn off love altogether. His passion, charisma, loyalty, and strength shake the very foundation she's built around her heart. Ian Matheson has spent his entire life trying to prove himself to belong. When his father passes away and his mother takes her vows at a nearby abbey, he's suddenly left in a position he was wholly unprepared for. And then his father's dozen illegitimate children arrive on his doorstep, in need of a father figure of their own. They are adorable and reckless, and he's certain they'll drive him mad. Just when he thinks he might actually need to find a wife to help him, Lady Amelia is presented to him by the king. She needs his protection, and he needs her help with the barons. Ian is tempted by her angelic face, her fiery tongue, and the secrets that surround her. He must resist the growing desire 
empire that's laying claim within him. He must prove to his clan that he's a worthy leader. But maybe, just maybe, he can have the respect of his people and Amelia too. A question from readers this week. What was the first historical novel you ever read? I'm going to go ahead and say, because I read classics and things like that a lot when I was a child, but the first historical novel I ever read that actually stuck with me was Ken Follett's Pillars of the Earth. My dad gave it to me, actually. He had read it and often passed me books because at that time I was reading at quite above my own grade level. And I read it and enjoyed it. I did skip a lot of the cathedral parts. If you've read the book, you know what I'm talking about. But since then, since the book was so poignant, and really, I think it's one of the reasons that I like to write historical fiction today, because I just fell in love with the prose and the topics and the nitty gritty and history and the facts and all the different relationships involved. I've read it several more times. I actually like to say that I've read it once a decade. And each time I read it, it changes because of the different relationships and things that you know, you've experienced in life. And it's interesting that each time I've read it, the book has changed because of my new perspective on life. So if you've read that book before, and it's been a while, I highly suggest reading it again, because you'll see things differently, or you'll notice something different than you did before. For example, now I really appreciate those cathedral scenes. All right, so now I have a question for you readers. What is your favorite cocktail? I would love to hear from you. And I'd love to have some recipes because I do enjoy hosting a party every once in a while with a favored drink that I can hand out to my guests. That is it for today. I hope that you enjoyed listening. If you have any questions, please email us at historybooksandwine at gmail.com. Our website is historybooksandwine.buzzsprout.com. We'll have the show notes for today's episode listed there. They can also be found on iTunes with our podcast. We are on Spotify, SoundCloud, Google, and Alexa. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a review. And remember, you can always send us questions at historybooksandwine at gmail.com. I hope you enjoyed hearing about the history of several different spirits and that you learned something new. And I hope if you say you need to go to the liquor store that you'll be with me on calling it the spirit store because that's just so much more fun. Thank you so much for tuning in and be sure to check out new episodes published weekly on Thursdays. Madeline's up next on May 23rd talking about beer, Lori on May 30th with whiskey, and our next happy hour is June 6th and we'll be talking about wine. I hope you all have an amazingly great week and I will chat with you next time. Bye.